Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah on page 487, beginning to read at chapter 4, verse 1. And we shall skip a bit in the middle. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burnt as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. So, hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilds or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And then continuing from verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plots to attack us, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men, nor the guards with me, took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the words that we've just read. Father, I pray for Peter as he speaks to us now, that you would speak to us through him. And Lord, give us the years to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. 
Well, I hope you're enjoying the sermon series that we're looking at at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I'm getting a lot out of it, for one, and it is a timely book for us to be looking at, isn't it? And uh, I hope in your home groups, if you're in a home group, uh, if you're not in one, um, that uh, we'll be talking about that and showing about what home groups are another time. Um, but I hope if you're in a home group, you're enjoying considering the message together in your group and uh, seeing how such a piece of writing, that it is an old piece of writing, Remember, it was written about 450 years before Christ, so it's, it is a very old piece of writing, but it is a very relevant piece of writing uh, for us today. Before I get into the message of Nehemiah 4, I want us to look at some uh, principles that guided Nehemiah's leadership uh, throughout the first few chapters. Uh, we can see them particularly in the first three chapters of the book, and uh, it'll help us just to reacquaint ourselves, remind ourselves of where we've got to in the story so far. I know um, not everybody comes to church every Sunday, um, and uh, we don't take a register. So if you haven't been here last week or the, uh, the week before that, you'll have a, an idea of where we've got to. So five principles of leadership as shown by Nehemiah so far. And there's some slides that will help us as well. The first principle is that of vision. Nehemiah's leadership shows vision. Uh, do you remember in our first study of Nehemiah, in the first week we looked at in chapter 1, we heard the bad news, how he heard the bad news about Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem having been torn down by the enemies around and about and the gates being burned down and torn down, and how he reacted to that news as he heard it. When I heard this about the people of Jerusalem and about the wall, I sat down and cried. I was very sad. I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven for several days. And out of this period of prayer, it's an intensive period of prayer, it's a, day, a time of prayer and fasting, a dream is born in him, if you like. A picture of how things might be better is born in him and how things could be better than they are. And as he prays and as he seeks God and then he prays a prayer we have in chapter 1, we see this vision forming in him of a rebuilt Jerusalem. And so he prays, Lord, let your ear be attentive. And God plants that vision in him there and then. He has a vision. He has vision. And that's the first principle of leadership, really, for any uh, leader or leaders. It's vision. He could see things as they might be, how they could be. Secondly, we see that another leadership principle we see there was commitments. Uh, if you remember that uh, Nehemiah's job, his role in the palace of Artaxerxes was to be his cupbearer. And the cupbearer was this, like a secret service agent who tasted the wine. If the wine is good, all well and good. If the wine is poisoned, well, that's the end of Nehemiah. So he's got a dangerous job, and yet also he's got quite a, a nice job. And yet he's got commitment to the cause that God puts in him. And so he says to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So whatever it takes, Nehemiah is committed to the cause, to the vision that he has got, that God has given him. And so in our discipleship, in our walk with Jesus, we need to be committed to what God is saying to us however costly it might be. Thirdly, we see another principle of leadership coming about, and we see that, uh, that of team building or teamwork. And we saw that in chapter 2 last week. 
where it says, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. The language is the, is, the, is the inclusive language. It's the us, it's the we. Together, we will do this. Nehemiah doesn't want to be a loner. He doesn't want to be a, a, a single leader on his own. He wants to gather people around him in leadership. He's very intentional about that. And likewise, in any rebuilding work that we do here at Christchurch, we're going to have to do that together as teams. All of us playing our part, all of us seeking God's vision, and all of us being committed to living that vision out to see the fruit that comes from that. Fourthly, we see careful planning. Ursula talked about that last week in her sermon, didn't she? Uh, that secret inspection of the wall, of how he went out at night. He looked carefully at the damage of the wall. Didn't tell anybody what he was doing, didn't tell anybody why he was there. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 16. The official did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He was doing the groundwork. He was planning it. He was looking carefully at what needed doing. He knew the extent of the damage. He knew the walls, how badly they were damaged. He had seen it. And one of the things that uh, Debbie and I are keen to do, particularly as we begin this sort of rebuilding work, is the simply getting to know you, hearing your stories, listening to you, acknowledging those stories, where there's been damage, where there's been hurts, and listening to your heart. What is God laying on your heart as we prayerfully discern together where we are at as a church and where we need to move forward into all that God has got for us and this community? And lastly, we have resources. He gathered his resources. We saw that in the first half of chapter 2. When he had that meeting, he was granted an audience with the king. And he said to the king, I need these resources. I need, if I'm going to do this job, I need these resources. Not only material, but human. And these are the people uh, that are listed in chapter 3, which we're not going to read through. It takes, it'll take too much time. But if you read chapter 3, you'll see there's a whole long list of the tribes and the groups and where they were assigned to work. And it goes from the sheep gate all the way around back to the sheep gate. Again, very detailed, really uh, amazing uh, read if you have the time to look at it. And again, it's, it's about all of us being involved in the rebuilding work here at Christchurch. So five principles of leadership that we've got. We've got vision. How might it be? How might it be better? We've got commitment, teamwork, careful planning, and the gathering of resources, both material and human. And so we get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we're going to think about, we're going to think about how does Nehemiah deal with opposition that comes against him? The opposition that inevitably comes against any godly enterprise. And this week, we're thinking particularly about the opposition that comes from outside the Christian community or outside the godly community, if you like. How do we deal with that? Uh, next week, Ivan's going to think about with us, how do we deal with the opposition from the inside? But this time, it's opposition from out there coming against us. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah gives us an ex excellent example of how to keep going, how to fix our eyes on Christ, how to fix our eyes on God throughout those difficult times as individuals and as a church body. And here, right at the start of chapter 4, do have it open before you, um, 
just so you can see what, what, where we're going. But right at the start of chapter 4, we, we have these, what I'm going to call, these pantomime ugly sisters. Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. Put your hand up if you've ever been to a pantomime. Yeah, probably most of you. If you ever go to a pantomime, you get, you know, you kind of get the ugly sisters, the baddies, if you like, and you get told, whenever you see those people, you've got to say, look out, they're right behind you. So if you're a school, I get you to do that, but you're not, so we don't. But anyway, we've got three people, three of these characters who are, you know, kind of pantomime ugly sisters, if you like. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And Sambalat, who is one of these people, actually he's quite a, a, a powerful ruler, he sees the building work and he sees it's going well. And he can't stand it. And in fact, it tells us he's incensed. And he starts to ridicule the work that is going on on the walls. And he's not on his own. No, he's not. He's got other groupies around him. He's got other people who are an audience for his ridicule, an audience for his insults and the jibes. And the text tells us he's in the presence of his associates and the army. So he's like any petty plutocrat. He needs an audience to join in the joke. And so he dishes out the, dishes out the insults aplenty. What are they doing? Who do they think they are? Do they really think they're going to get this thing done? These are insults. These are questions. These are criticisms to get uncertainty and, and unease in the people. And another ugly sister, Tobiah, joins in with his own jibes and he says, have a look at that. What do they think they're doing? Even a little fox would make that wall fall down. Now I wonder what your response would have been to that kind of insult and those sorts of jibes. How would you react? They're really sort of petty, but you build them up, they can become really quite a lot. And you know, it might be enough to make your blood boil. Which reminds me a little bit of, of C.S. Lewis and his screw tape letters, you know, that classic, of how the, the, the older devil is, is teaching the, the junior devil how to have a go at people, how to have a go at human beings. And the way to do it is to sort of put a little question in their head. Do you think you're really going to make a difference? Do you really think as a Christian you're going to make a difference? You'll never achieve anything. But notice how Nehemiah responds. He responds in what David Rauch might call an arrow prayer, that direct prayer, that quick prayer to God. And he prays, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, we might be a bit surprised by that sort of prayer, because essentially it's a, it's a plea that God would send thunder and lightning on those people, teach them a lesson. And yet it's got other, other echoes of prayers like that in Scripture. One of them is Jeremiah, the great prophet Jeremiah. He says something similar in a similar situation. He's going through a time of deep persecution, and he says this, But you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. But you notice, if you look at those, those prayers or, or, or Nehemiah's prayer, you'll see that what they're praying about isn't so much their reputation as God's. 
They're concerned about God's honour, God's reputation, not theirs. So those, pan- those sort of pantomime ugly sisters are actually insulting God's name and God's honour. And so Nehemiah is praying that God would defend his own honour. And God, of course, is big enough to do that, isn't he? He's big and powerful enough to do that. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves, are we more concerned with our honour or God's honour? Whose reputation are we more concerned about? Is it his honour that guides our decisions? His honour that guides our actions? His that discerns, helps us discern where we spend our time and energy? Or are we more concerned oh, about our reputation? Sometimes worth asking ourselves that question. And then verse 6 that we didn't read tells us that things are going well for the people. There's an encouraging insight that uh, all the people work with all their hearts. They're being well led, well encouraged, and they're working with all their hearts. And then we skipped over the passage in the middle. It's a long chapter. I didn't think we needed to read all of it. But uh, essentially what's, what's going on in the middle bit of, the, of this chapter is that these pantomime ugly sisters have another go at the people. And so the, the opposition is being ratcheted up a bit, a little bit intensified. And there's rumors and plots that, that the Jews are now actually going to be killed. And the builders are getting more nervous thinking, what's going to happen? Are we going to be attacked? And this panic is rising in their voices. But notice again how Nehemiah responds. It's a calm response. And it's a practical and a spiritual response. Firstly, the practical. He says, therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and spears and bows. It's a practical response. They can defend themselves from attack. But Nehemiah also points towards their source of true safety, who is God, in verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. God is with us, he's saying to them. God is with us. He is great and awesome. There's no one like him. No one in the whole universe. What can those feeble people do against such a mighty God? And so for us, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Maybe in times of darkness, despair, when you're feeling opposed on every side, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Perhaps you've been through those times in the past of of real despair and darkness and depression and you know what that's like. Or maybe you're in a position like that now. Maybe you're in that place right now. Or maybe we're going to go through that in the future as God leads us into the future. What does Nehemiah encourage us to do? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And this is where we reach probably one of the most famous passages in Nehemiah, a well-loved passage. I'll read it again. Uh, in, in full, as it merits our full attention, and I'm reading from verse 16. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. 
This is the famous sword and trowel tactic that Nehemiah has for the people. He devises to keep the work going while they're under attack, while they're under the threat of attack at any moment. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Could have been disastrous. I don't know if you've ever tried this one. I mean, if I'm gardening, it's it's hard enough for me to hold a a shovel, let alone a, a sword as well. But he's thought about it. And it goes well. He's, he needs to keep the building work going. He's got to keep the building work going. And he's also got to enable them to be ready to fight at any moment. Now, what a lesson that is for us as disciples of Jesus. What a lesson. Jesus needs people who are fully living in the world. He needs people who are fully living in the world. And doing their jobs at school, at college down the street, in our families, a coffee in the living room, building relationships, wherever that is, with people. But at the very same time, ready at any moment to, to pray and join in the spiritual battle that is going on around us all the time. Are we ready? Those are sound tactics. And it must have made the enemy think twice about attacking and not only that, Nehemiah has spread, as you'll see, he's spreading his leaders out along the ramparts. And if they hear the sound of the trumpet, they are to gather at that place to defend the walls. And he reminds them again in verse 20, our God will fight for us. He's showing great leadership. He's got the vision of the rebuilt Jerusalem ahead of them to look at, to be inspired about. The commitment is there, it's obvious. He's got teamwork going, the plans are thought through, and he's got the resources all carefully divided up. And notice what it says right at the end of our passage about the leaders, and about the leaders mucking in and getting involved with everybody else. The last verse says, Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is, this is teamwork. This is about the leaders not standing aloof and separate and somehow kind of thinking, well, we're not, you're not going to do that as well. No, they get involved. They're in the muck and the grime and the hard work and the fights and the rebuilding. And again, there's a, a profound lesson there for those of us who are leaders. But this chapter, as I said, towards the start, it hones in, the, it hones in focuses us in on the question, how do we deal with difficult times, with those times of opposition, when it seems like everything is against us and all are against us? And the temptation is to say, hey, look, it's all too much, and to give up and give in. Because those Jews who are being jibed and taunted and insulted, they could have said, well, I, I, I give up. I, I'm going to go back to where I came from. I don't care whether I was in slavery or not. I just want to go back there. And Nehemiah, he's spurring them on, encouraging them on to pray and work, to work while they pray, pray while they work. Sword and trowel, prayer and work. So let's think for a moment how we might apply that to us at Christchurch. What needs building up in our life as a church? Well, truth be told, there are lots of areas. But one of the areas that Debbie and I I have identified is is the children's and youth work. Folks, we can't keep harking back to the good old old days when Christchurch had lots of kids and lots of families. 
because we know the truth. Just, just look around on a Sunday morning. We live in the here and now, and we have very few young people. But we do have some children and young people. And we've got to cherish them. They're part of our church. Even if they're not in church every Sunday, they are part of our church. And it is tough for them. If you've got children of your own, if you've got uh, grandchildren of your, own, of your own, you'll know that being a Christian today is probably harder than it's ever been. Probably. It's tough. It's tough even to, to come to church as a youngster these days or go to a, to a midweek discipleship group because it's not trendy, it's not cool. So how do we nurture them? How do we cherish them? How do we grow them? What's our response? Well, our response might be to say, well, I'm too old. I've been there, I've done that. It's all too hard, too difficult. Or do we do what Nehemiah shows us that we can do? And it boils down to that pray and work idea. Yes, pray. Yes, pray. Let's pray for our young people and children. Let's give thanks for them. Let's give thanks for all that they give to us as a church. And yes, of course, let's pray that more will come in time. But maybe God is calling us to be the answer to our own prayers, as we've seen that Nehemiah was. Sharon and Adrian, I don't want to embarrass these people, but Sharon and Adrian and John and Dan have done that by leading the Youth Alpha Group and the Boys Bible Study, respectively. And that, I'm sure, is costly. What a difference they're making in those young people's lives. I know that because our two go to Youth Alpha and they really, really value it. But what about on Sundays? The leaders are few and far between. And essentially it's fallen on the parents to maintain any sort of provision for the youngsters and the children. But if we really care about them, if we really value them, it's part of, and they're part of our church family, then we are all in this together. And surely we need to share the responsibility for that. So may I ask you to consider something. Is there something that you can offer, even if it's just once a month or less than once a month, to, to bless these children and young people that we have? You may have heard about the pray and bake idea. If you like baking, you can go and bake something with them on a Sunday morning and then pray with them. You could even commit to pray for them, get to know their names and say, I want to pray for you regularly. What's going on in your life? How is it for you at school? How is it for you at college? How can I pray for you? How can I get alongside you? Maybe you could go and share with them on a Sunday morning about what it's like to be a Christian for you. What does, it might, what does it mean to live out your faith in the situation that you're in? And they will learn from that and they will grow from that. We know, don't we, that the little we have, God multiplies. Just think of the story of the five loaves and the two fishes. Jesus multiplies it. He takes a little we give and he grows it. And he makes it fruitful. But we've got to be prepared to offer it. So don't hold back. Don't wait for others to do it. Don't wait for a youth or children's worker to be appointed. Don't let the challenge fall away. If you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you, please talk to Sally or Debbie or Ian. Do it today. Or if not today, go away and think about it. Pray about it. And act on what you feel God is saying to you. Or maybe God is challenging you in another area. As I said, there's lots of other areas that we need to build up uh, and, and build upon. But Debbie's and Hart's 
Uh, Debbie, the mind heart is that we will move forward together and be open to the challenge of God to us. So let me finish by saying two things. Firstly, as we re- rebuild the walls here at Christchurch, as we live out our lives day by day for God, in those places God has called us to, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Don't give up. Don't give in. Let's not falter when the cost seems too great. But let's do what St. Paul says in that amazing description of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. As he says to us, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So can I invite you, if you are able to, if you'd like to, to stand and I'll pray as, as I finish before I hand back to Steve. Lord and Heavenly Father, we stand in your presence and we say you are great and awesome. You are more awesome than anything in this world. You have more power and might and majesty than all the rulers of the world combined. You are the God of the heaven and universe. And you are our God. And we cry out to you that you would bless us with a vision for the future. That you would implant that vision in us. That you would make us committed to whatever that vision might be. That you would build us into teams. That you would help us to plan. That you would give us the resources that we need. And Lord, as any opposition comes against us, as it will, from out there, that you would help us to withstand that, as St. Paul says, to stand and then to stand. Lord, would you bless your people? Would you give us all that we need? In Jesus' name.